Today's passage comes from Romans 11, 1 through 8. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, so at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Excuse me. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 11. In the New Testament, we're continuing through our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. I want to remind you, if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you, the seat pocket. That's our gift to you. You can take that and follow along this morning. The words will be on the screen in just a few minutes. But we are continuing through the book of Romans. And particularly, this section 9, chapter 9 through 11, has been called the forbidden zone. It's been called the puzzle of Romans because there are some difficult things that we have been and are continuing to deal with here in Romans 9 through 11. And we come to chapter 11 this morning, and I was going to tell you, I was somewhat encouraged this week, and then I was a little bit grieved when I thought about it. But I came across this pastor's testimony in Texas, and at their church, like our church, they were walking through the book of Romans together. And his testimony was when they came to Romans 9 through 11, they just skipped it. <laughs> They just left it out altogether, and he went on to chapter 12, and, and you hear that, and I get it. I mean, there's some tough stuff here. I can relate to that. But when the pastor was asked, why did you choose to skip such an important, yes, difficult passage of Scripture, he basically responded this way. He said, throughout church history, these chapters have just simply been too difficult. These chapters are too confusing and way too divisive. And then he said, in the end, our people would probably not understand it anyway. Now, when I heard that, i got to be honest, I kind of resonated because I thought, I get it, this is tough stuff. But then my heart broke in the reality that, man, I couldn't imagine our church having missed what God has done and is doing through Romans 9-11 through 11 over the past few weeks in the life of our church. I don't deny that we are in some deep waters and tough stuff in Romans 9 through 11. But here's a reality that I, and I'm continuing to learn. That if we want a faith that is beyond the superficial, and we want our faith to be rooted and anchored in the character of who God is, sometimes you've got to plumb the depth of the truth of God. Romans chapter 11, Paul even describes these chapters at the end of chapter 11, and he says, oh, the depth of the wisdom, both of the knowledge of God, how, how unsearchable are his ways, how unfathomable his precepts. Paul gets to the end of this section, and he says, this is pretty deep stuff, but watch this. Then he goes into one of the most glorious sections of worship anywhere in your Bible, and here's what I know. 
When we plummet the truths of God, wrestling with difficult truth can lead us to glorious worship of who He is. Now I want to say that again because I think some of you nodded off this morning because we're getting ready to dive down into a passage that I read a commentary this week preparing and like the first paragraph of the commentary, the commentator said, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. (laughs) So be encouraged this morning, all right? Paul says... When we wrestle with some of the difficult truth of who God is, it can lead us to glorious, authentic worship of who God is. And I want that for us this morning, and I want that for us as we continue to walk through the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 11, just to remind you, Paul is writing a letter, and he's writing a letter to a church, a church at Rome. He's writing a letter to a church that's made up of Jewish believers, not a lot of them, a few, and a whole lot of Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers. He's writing this letter to the church at Romans, and he's explaining the message of the gospel, and he's explaining all the implications of the message of the gospel, that Christ alone has died for the sins of the world. By faith in Him and Him alone, we can be made right with God. We are justified. We are sanctified. We will be glorified. There will be no separation. There, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. All these implications of the gospel, the glorious message of the gospel in which we stand. Then he gets to Romans 9 and 11, and he, and he gives us parentheses, if you will, this what seems to sometimes not even be a flow. And he says, okay, we're going to stop the flow, so to speak, of Romans, and we're going to stop here. And he's, we're going to answer this vital question in Romans 9 through 11, and here it is. What about Israel? What about the nation of Israel? Not Not the geographic entity necessarily, but the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, the ones who received the promise of God, the ones who were given the promise of God in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, given to Abraham, the first Jew, God said, through you, I'm going to be a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. At the time of the writing of the letter of Romans, as it is today, the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel was rejection of their Messiah. The the, the spiritual condition of the people of Israel at this time was they had rejected their Messiah. They were scattered all over the world. So the question was this. If they're the people of God's promise, they have rejected their Messiah. What about Israel? Now, I want you to understand something this morning. One of the reasons it's so significant that we here understand God's activity in the nation of Israel are a couple reasons. Number one. Every two years, a a group from our church, Jennifer and I get to lead a trip, and we get to go to Israel. We're there for 10 or 12 days, and we tour through Israel, and we we meet the people of Israel. We we love that experience. One of the things you realize if you study any history, it's almost impossible to grasp and understand human history apart from the nation of Israel. Because, Because of God's promise... God's purposes for Israel, what he's going to do through Israel, you don't even understand the past or the present, and you sure don't get the future apart from the nation of Israel. When it comes to the gospel that we believe and this Bible that we hold, just just remember, the Bible that we hold to be true has got 66 books. 64 of them were written by Jews. (laughs) This Messiah that this book is all about, Jesus, 
was a Jew. Newsflash, Jesus was, was of Jewish lineage in his humanity. Paul said in the New Testament, speaking of God's people that we're now apart, we have been built upon the foundation of the apostles, all Jews, and the prophets, all Jews, and the cornerstone is Jesus himself, a Jew. And by the way, if you want to understand the future, the future millennial kingdom is going to be all about King Jesus, and it's going to take place in a place called, ready for this, New Jerusalem, city of the Jews. It's not New Atlanta, it's not New Paris, it's not New Rome, it's New Jerusalem. What's the point? And we don't understand the gospel, we don't understand human history, we are so limited in understanding, if we don't understand God's activity, promises, and purpose, and future for Israel. So Paul says, if you want to understand this gospel that I'm teaching, I've got to take some time here, three chapters, and I've got to help you understand what God's been doing in the nation of Israel, and the people of Israel. He talks about that in chapter 9, we, we discussed that, that have God's promises for Israel failed, even though it looks like all of Israel's rejecting? And Paul says, absolutely not. God's promises have not failed. Why is Israel in the condition they're in? He answers that in chapter 10, and he says, it's all part of God's redemptive plan, and at the same time, Israel is responsible for their obstinate rebellion and rejection of their Messiah. He deals with that. Then you come to Romans chapter 11, and there's a couple things Paul's going to deal with this week and next week, and we're going to look at what is the meaning? How do we interpret Israel's current state of rejection of their Messiah? How do, you, how do you interpret that? How does that fit into God's plan? And then next week we're going to look at what does it mean that one day Israel is going to be fully restored? And what does that mean for all of the world? And Paul deals with that right here in Romans chapter 11. All right? So here we go. We're going to jump in. Romans 11.1, 1, one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Be encouraged. Here we go. What about Israel? Paul asked the question, chapter 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, I don't have to go into all of history, and I don't have to give you a whole lot of accounts. There are plenty of people who have lived and died and moved on that would answer that question and say, absolutely yes. There are prominent Christian leaders who have tried to declare that with all that we see today, God's apparent moving past Israel, God has given up and God is done with Israel. Paul disagrees. Verse 1, has God rejected his people? By no means. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So I'm going to give you a big truth this morning, and we're going to have a few supporting big ideas that comes out of this. The big truth is this, and it's highly theological. You ready? Here we go. God's not finished with Israel. <laughs> God's not finished with Israel. That has massive implications for you and me this morning and how we understand Scripture. God's not finished with Israel. So help us with this, Paul. He, he goes on. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? He gives an example how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But do you not remember what God said back to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant. A remnant chosen by grace. Well, Pastor Mike, you're going to have to help me make some sense of this, all right? Big truth. God is not finished with Israel. Here's your big idea number one. We're going to have a three of them. 
Israel's current rejection is only partial. Paul says, I want you to understand something. When we look at the current spiritual condition, this is true today, of Israel's rejection of their Messiah, their rejection is only partial. It's not in, it's not in total. Give me some illustrations to help with that, Paul. All right, I'm going to give you four. Here's some illustrations that Israel's rejection is only partial. Paul says, number one, me. Paul says, you want an example that God is not finished with the Jewish people. Paul says, what about me? Verse 1, he says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning I'm a follower of the Messiah. God has opened my eyes. I'm a believer in Jesus. Paul says, that's evidence in my life that God is not done with his people Israel. Paul says, I got a personal example. Secondly, he says, I got a theological example. He says, verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Foreknowledge, here's the same idea of foreknowledge in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. It's not just God peers down through the centuries and, and realizes what's going to happen and then kind of responds. Foreknowledge is the idea of a choice, a predetermination by God. God has foreknown, God has predetermined that he's going to save a remnant and continue a remnant. And the point is this, those whom God had chosen to set his love on are going to come to him. So Paul says, you want an example that God has not done with Israel? It's God's sovereignty. He is going to save those whom he's chosen to save according to his foreknowledge. He says, I'll give you another example. What about Elijah? He says, you remember back in the days of Elijah? That was a song a few years ago. You remember back in the days of Elijah? He said, Elijah was this prophet in Israel and things looked really bleak. And there seemed to be no other followers of the one true God in Elijah's day. So Elijah has this big pity party. You remember that? Back in 1 Kings and Elijah's bemoaning, Oh Lord, I'm the only one left. Woe is me, I'm the only one here. He says, verse 3, Lord, they've killed your... He's quoting Elijah here. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. And Paul says, do you remember what God said back to Elijah in the midst of his pity party? He said, Elijah, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you're looking from your limited human perspective at what you can see. I'm going to pull back and let you see it from my perspective. And God said to Elijah in those days, he said, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, meaning there was a remnant. It looked like in the times of Elijah that God was finished with Israel back then. And Paul says, like back then, just like today, there was a remnant that God preserved by his grace. Then Paul says, I got more than that. I got a current example, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul says, even today. Paul says, and I can just imagine him writing this and putting the pen and, and, say, and all these Jewish believers that he's had a part in bringing to faith. Aquila and Priscilla and all these different believers that maybe come to his mind. There were not a lot of Jewish believers in that day, but there were some. And Paul says, even in the present day, there are some believers among the Jewish people. I told you earlier, we take a trip every two years to Israel. And again, it's one of the highlights that we get to be a part of. One of the highlights is being able to spend time with the, the Jewish people. Another highlight is we have some friends who are there that are Messianic Jews. And they are descendants of Abraham, but they've come to know Christ. 
Eric is our tour guide, and we have him every couple years, and he's a follower of Jesus and his understanding of the scriptures and his zeal for the Lord among a vast sea of rejecting Jews. Yes, but here's one who is a believer. Abraham and his wife is another one. Abraham is his name. He comes and shares, and he's a pastor there in Jerusalem, reaching his brethren, the Jewish people, and in a very difficult circumstances, even today. It may appear God is finished with his people. Paul says, no, 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 no. Even today, there are believing Jews around us. And he goes on and he says, I want to give you some understanding of this. He says, verse 6, he says, or verse 5, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. What do you mean, Paul? Verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul, what does that mean? Tim Keller helps us. He says, what guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant is not that there's always a set of good, decent people who will believe, not based on works, but rather there's always the grace of God. That's encouraging, by the way. God's work in a remnant is not that there'll always be some good, wholesome people God can find. That's not, never the case. It's the grace of God. He goes on and say, it is God who preserves a remnant, those who believe to do so because of his electing sovereign grace. So the point in all this is Paul wants us to hear If it begins to shake your faith, and if you begin to question, can I trust the promises of God? If I look at the people of Israel and all that God has done, and all the promises to them, and all that is written about them in the Bible, I could conclude that maybe God is finished with Israel. And God says, or Paul says, no, no, no. Their rejection is only partial. There is a remnant that God, by His grace, has persevered throughout the ages, even up until today. Now, secondly, God's not finished with Israel. Their rejection is only partial. Secondly, I want to give you this, Israel's current rejection is purposeful. Israel's current rejection is purposeful. You say, Pastor Mike, that sounds like some good preaching alliteration there. It starts with the same letter and everything. Well, listen, I paid good money to go to seminary to learn how to do that, all right? So, partial. And then Paul is going to say some things in these next few verses. We're going to jump down to verse 11. I want you to see this, that even in Israel's vast rejection of Messiah, God has a bigger purpose that will not fail. Now, watch this. Verse 11, Paul says, so I ask then, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is the rejection permanent? Is the rejection meaningless? Is God in heaven wringing his hands going, this was not the way I intended it. I better come up with a plan B. And Paul says, by no means may it never be. He says, rather... Don't think that way. Paul says, no, no, no. Rather, through their trespass, through their rejection, and we're going to talk about exactly what that is in just a minute, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Let me tell you something. That is massive for you and me. He says, through their obstinance, through their rejection of their Messiah, God has directed his attention to the Gentiles. That's us. There may be some Jewish believers and brothers and sisters in this room. I'm not sure. My assumption is the majority of us are Gentiles. Paul says, 
even through Israel's obstinate rejection, God had a purpose in taking the gospel to us, the Gentiles. Keep reading. The purpose in all of that, in verse 11, so as to make Israel jealous. <laughs> so th this is one of the, I'm just going to stop right here. This is one of those areas in Scripture where you understand why Paul says in Romans eleven thirty three, 33, Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his ways. So he says, listen, God said I'm going to bless Israel. I'm going to set my affections on Israel. Even despite their rejection, I'm now going to set my affection on the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles believe, I'm going to use the belief of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. It's part of my plan. It's all part of God's plan. Keep reading. Because of the rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people, the gospel goes to us, the Gentiles. There's examples throughout Scripture of this. You can just write these down on your own. Acts 13, 46, the early church, Paul and Barnabas are preaching. The Bible says in Acts 13, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, Paul says, we're going to the Gentiles. That's a pattern. Acts 18, and when they opposed and reviled Paul, he shook out his garments and said to them, to the Jews, your blood be on your own hands or heads, I'm innocent, now I'm going to the Gentiles. You're rejecting your Messiah? In God's providence and plan, that means then the message will go to the Gentile world. Paul says that's the way you interpret and understand history. That's the way you interpret what's been happening over the last 2,000 years. That's how you interpret what God is doing in the continent of Africa and places like Asia and throughout the world where God's gospel is advancing. He says, I, used, I started with the people of Israel. I used even their rejection to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because I'm God. <laughs> and my purposes will be accomplished. Jesus even taught this idea or this reality. There's so many of the parables of Jesus that you've probably come up on and you've read. I don't know what that means. Matthew 22, Jesus teaches a parable about a rich man. He says this rich man is going to host a dinner and he's going to host this dinner for his son. And Jesus teaches and he says there was a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out slaves to call those who had been invited to come to the wedding feast. They were unwilling to come. Jews. Jesus goes on, he says again, the owner said, sends out his slaves, says, tell them who had been invited, come, I've prepared my dinner. But they paid no attention. Jews. Then he says, but the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire. Why has so much discipline come upon the, ch the children of Israel? Why has all of that happened with Babylon and all that happened with Persia and all that happened in the Old Testament? God was lovingly but sternly disciplining his people. History. And then Jesus says, and then this wedding feast, this father said, go, send out now my servants and take this message to the main highways. And as many as you can find, invite them into the wedding feast. Who's that? Us. What's up? History. So, Pastor Mike, I don't even know what to do with all this. Keep, just hang with me. Ultimately, through that, the Jews will be made envious and will be brought to restoration. Verse 11 again. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel jealous. 
God knew that was going to be his plan. Back in Deuteronomy 32, you can just write that down. He said, I will provoke my people to anger with a foolish nation. God said, I'm going to arouse the jealousy of my people with, watch, the joy of the Gentiles. We get joy. God's purposes are accomplished. And jealousy is aroused. And God restores his people Israel. That's history. Keep going, verse 13. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, that's us, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I take very seriously what God has assigned me to do to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. Paul says, I'm committed to the ministry God's given me. At the same time, I know God is going to bring in my Jewish brethren as I proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles because it makes them jealous. See, Pastor Mike, I I didn't know jealousy was a good thing. (laughs) Well, this is the sense of not jealousy that I'm angry because you get something that I didn't and I want it and I do that out of just not out of love. It's the idea of great love that God wants what he has for his people and to enjoy them. It's the idea of my heart is stirred about something that you have and there's this desire that's created there that's not always a sinful thing. The point is this. Paul is saying here to us, the church, watch, predominantly Gentile in this age, that the world, specifically Jews, are to peer into our lives and see the quality of our lives, the joy of our hearts, the transformation of who we are, and they're to go, I want that. So I'm going to tell you a convicting thing as I read this this week. I had to ask myself, when people watch me who don't know Christ, does that make them want him more? The point here is, particularly among the Jewish people, they're to see us holding out a Bible that transforms our lives and convicts and challenges and grows and and we're transformed by it. And they realize, wait a minute. That's our book. (laughs) Those are our writers. Those are our authors. Those are our promises. You're right. They're to peer in and they're to see the fellowship of God's people as it was described in places like Deuteronomy and in places like Exodus of how the people of God are to relate and serve and care and be generous for one another. And they're to look in and go, wait a minute, that's the promises we were supposed to enjoy. And we're to go, yes, you're right. You're invited to this Messiah. They're to peer in and to see our lives. Now watch this, whether it's at the office, whether wherever it is, on a global scale, the Jewish people are to peer in and to see an authentic, transformed people called the church, and it is to cause them to be jealous for this Jesus that we love and we sing about and we claim and we give our lives to. And they're going, wait a minute, Messiah? Did you say Jesus the Messiah, the Christ? Yeah. Oh, wait, that's our Messiah. That's right. That's right. That's the point. Is our lives so authentic? Is your gospel that you hold out so transformational of your life that people watch you, even the Jewish people, and say, I want that? Man, I tell you, that is convicting and challenging to me. God said, That's my plan. 
I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to restore my people, Israel. And it's not through brute sovereignty in the sense. It is through holding out and giving joy to the Gentiles. And through that joy that I give to the Gentiles, I'm going to make my people jealous. And that's going to be my way to restore them and bring them to salvation. What a plan. You get joy and makes them jealous. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Is your joy real? Is our joy the contagious sort that is authentic and makes those, it whets the appetite of those who see salt and light, Jesus said. That's God's plan to redeem his people Israel. Now, keep going here. God gives this word picture of blessing to Israel, then to the Gentiles. The Gentiles goes back to Israel, and then Israel, when they are restored, ultimately is going to be blessing for the whole world. God made a promise to Israel in Genesis 12 to Abraham and said, Through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world. Is that promise fulfilled? Partially. Messiah has come. Yes, Jesus has come. There are blessings to the world that have yet to be fulfilled through the restoration of Israel. How do you know that? We're going to talk more about that next week. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world... What would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Oh, beloved, that's one of those verses you read. I say, I have no idea what that means. We're going to talk more about it next week. Here's the point. Paul says, if by Israel's rejection the gospel has come to us, you wait until Israel is restored to my place of favor and what that's going to mean for the world. That's the rest of Romans 11 next week. I'll give you a little hint. It means New Jerusalem, it means new creation, it means millennial kingdom, it means the lion and the lamb lie down together, it means new bodies, it means new life, it means the world, the new creation will be ushered in, and all of that is tied in to the restoration of his people Israel. We're going to look at that next week. Another quick application here, look at verse 12. It says, now if they're trespassed, this idea that blessing comes to us through Israel's rejection... Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, what does that mean? Now, we've said in general what it means, but I want you to notice a word here. He says trespass. He doesn't say trespasses. He says trespass, singular. What trespass is Paul talking about? I think Acts 2 helps us. Acts 2, speaking to the people of Israel, Peter proclaims, and he says, Men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I want you to watch something here with me. What is the greatest trespass that's ever been committed by humanity in the history of the world? The murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. No evil could ever surpass that. And Paul says... That God in his sovereignty has used even their trespass to bring riches to the world. Here's what that means for you and me this morning. Watch this. Is God ever the author of evil? No. No evil can be found in him. But I want you to know something here, beloved. Paul is teaching God is not the author of evil in your life, but he is absolutely sovereign over every evil that comes into your life. I'm telling you, that ought to be incredibly encouraging to you this morning. I don't know why 
I don't know why that disease came into my family. I don't know why we experienced the loss that we experienced. I don't know why things didn't work out like they worked out. But here's what I know about God. God is never the author of evil, but He is so sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign over every evil, pain, crisis that enters my life for His glory. All of them. Redemption to the world through the greatest trespass ever committed, God sovereignly uses it for His purposes and His plan. Man, what a Savior. So God uses even the trespasses of Israel to bring about good. Now, let's keep going. Just a little bit. We're almost done. Big truth. God is not finished with Israel. Israel's rejection as we see it is partial. Israel's rejection as we see it is purposeful. God has purposes in it. We just saw that. Third thing, and we're done this morning, is this. I want you to see Israel's current rejection is instructional to us. Paul is going to write some things here directly to us as Gentiles. Paul's going to write some things here, and it's as if he's saying, listen, Gentiles, I want you to look at the picture of Israel. I want you to look at their history, and I want you to learn some things. And he says that beginning in verse 17. And don't miss this. Hang with me. He, he's going to use an agricultural illustration. When you, when you travel to the land of Israel, man, olive trees are everywhere. They're a big deal in the nation of Israel. He's going to use this olive tree, a healthy, growing, robust olive tree, to describe the nation of Israel. Then he's going to use a shoot or a branch fastened onto that olive tree even unnaturally about us we're the we're this wild branch and how all that fits in so hang with me verse 17 he says but if some of the branches were broken off israel some because of unbelief many were broken off and you gentiles although a wild olive shoot meaning not natural you're not even naturally part of the tree you were grafted in, and grafting, again, it's an agricultural term. You know what that means, right? To, to fasten and work in such a way that a branch can be fastened to this tree, even though it didn't begin in that tree. That's grafting in. He says, and you were grafted in among others. You now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18. Don't you be arrogant. Don't you be arrogant toward the branches, toward the people of Israel. If you are, you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. What does that mean? I'll give you a quote from a man named William Ramsey who helps us with this wild olive shoot picture Paul is saying here. We're that wild shoot. What, what does that mean? Listen to this quote. In exceptional cases, it is customary to reinvigorate an olive tree, Israel, which is ceasing to bear fruit by grafting in a shoot of the wild olive so that the sap of the tree ennobles this wild shoot and the whole tree now again begins to bear fruit. Paul says, you have been grafted in. And here's an agricultural reality. When you stick that wild olive branch, the whole tree starts to flow sap and it invigorates the whole tree. God says, listen, before you get arrogant about your place, you know you're not even the end. You're not even the ultimate purpose. 
That doesn't diminish God's love for us as Gentiles. It helps us understand our place in human history. Before you get arrogant and you start believing somehow, someway, you've earned this place in God's family, you realize you're nothing but a wild olive branch that I put on there. You're not even part of the original tree. That is a lesson for you and me. And I'm going to give you three words, and here's the first one. Absolute humility. Humility. Paul says to these Gentile believers here and to us, this ought to be pride-smashing reality, recognizing the immense grace God has extended to us, to Gentiles, to be grafted into God's people and God's plan. Here's another way of saying it. In the gospel plan of God, there is no place for spiritual pride. None. If there's anything that starts to come up in you of, well, I am choice of God because of me or because of anything about me, you remember, you're nothing but a wild branch. (laughs) And the reason you are who you are and where you are in God's plan is not because you are choice, it's because God chose by grace. Big difference. Humility. Man, that ought to smash our pride. Daniel said it earlier, so much that hinders our deep dependence and our worship and our our growth in Christ is nothing but just pride. Paul says, listen, know your place in God's plan. Secondly, honor. He says, do not be arrogant toward the branches, Israel. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, he is saying, understand there is a special purpose for my people Israel throughout history. There is honor that's to be shown from the church, from believers to God's people Israel. There's much we'll say about that next week, but there is honor throughout history, and I don't have to recount. I can name all the names. I can give you a ton of quotes. I got them written down here. I'm not going to take time to do them. There has been this There's been this hostility toward the Jews for multiple reasons, even among believers. Paul says, no way. There is a degree of honor. And I would even say a degree of burden. One of the things you come away with from Israel, if you get to go there and travel there with a group that going to be a part of you can't leave that land without being blown away of God's greatness and you can't leave that land without a brokenness for the people of Israel Paul says that's that's right that's good there's humility know your know your place in God's purposes there's honor for the people of Israel and then thirdly and and we'll wrap up with this there's there's basically going to be a strong warning here Paul says if you look at the way Israel has been dealt with through history and you you look at Israel who has been given more blessings than any nation I read in Psalms this morning what great nation is there like Israel who has been entrusted with all these blessings all these promises and yet God did not wink at their unbelief but judged it severely there's a lesson in that for you Gentiles there's a lesson in that for us Gentiles here it is verse 21 then you will say Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true, verse 20. But you need to understand what's behind that, he says, verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Yes, it was part of God's purpose and God's plan, but behind that was their own rejection and their unbelief. But you, end of verse 20, stand fast through faith. So do not become proud but fear. 
Now listen to me. This is a stern warning from Paul to the Gentiles, and I can't think of a more applicable warning for us in East Tennessee, highly religious culture who know all the answers, have all the religious activity, and Paul says, don't you be arrogant, but you fear. And here's what I think he's saying. Beware of a self-righteous, religious, active zeal that is really masquerading as arrogance and is really obstinate unbelief. Nobody was more religious than the Jewish people. Nobody had more religious trappings than the Jewish people. Nobody could quote more verses. Nobody could attend more services. Nobody could do more religious stuff than the religious people. And Paul says, for the most of them, that was a masquerade because it was their own selfish efforts to try to appease God. Watch this. Rather than receive grace. And he says, you beware. God dealt with those people severely. Tim Keller says, a person can try so hard to please God in their own efforts that they come to resist the whole concept of grace. It's grace. He goes on, he says, verse 22, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. <laughs> My kids jokingly say that's a verse that applies to their mother. <laughs> she is kind and severe at the same time. I asked her permission to share that, by the way, because of her severity. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> it's true, though. Paul says, note then. If you write in your Bible, circle that word, whatever that word is at the beginning of verse 22, because it's a word that basically says meditate on, think on, ponder on this. Ponder on the vast character of God. His kindness, which is glorious, and at the same time, he is severe in dealing with unbelief. That's the point. It says, note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness toward you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Point is, God deals severely with unbelief. You make sure that your faith is not merely external trappings of religious, that's really just hiding your self-righteous effort to please God rather than a repentance from self and a faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus that is transformational. And Paul says, if it's genuine faith, you will continue in kindness, verse 22. Does that mean, well, i got to maintain it? No, it says, if it's real, it will last and it will persevere. What is a characteristic of genuine, life-saving, transforming faith? It continues until the end, and God, you don't get part of it. You get it all. You continue in the faith. Paul says that's genuine faith. He says, you be aware. You know the kindness, and at the same time, the severity of God toward unbelief. I want to ask the team to come on up and join us. I'm going to ask you, just right there where we are, we're going to enter into a time of response. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a minute. And this has been a lot. I, I told you there's a lot here. Next week we're going to get to Israel's restoration and what that means for the world. But man, there's so much here for us this morning. Just in a moment of personal worship, right there before the Lord. Second Peter, the Apostle Peter writes, and he says something that's a practical application of what we just talked about. He says this. He says, you be diligent to make to, to be sure that your calling and election, to confirm that your calling and election are sure.
meaning. Don't you hang your hat on some prayer you prayed 20 years ago. Don't hang your eternity on some act that you did. Some, some, you, are you transformed and born again by the person of Jesus Christ? It's the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Have you repented from self and flung yourself completely in faith on the person of Jesus Christ? Just with your head bowed for a minute, I'm going to pray for you. I want to let you know also when we stand and sing in just a moment, if you're here and you need to speak with someone about a relationship with Jesus, you need to, someone needs to, you just want to pray with someone this morning, whatever it is, right through those doors to the left, there's an area called the hub. There will be people there right now ready to meet with you, ready to talk about a relationship with Jesus, ready to walk you through what that means. We'd love to spend that time with you this morning. Father, we love you. Thank you for your truth. Let us respond now in authentic worship in light of, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of our God. How unsearchable are your ways, how unfathomable are your precepts, for from you and for you and unto you are all things. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.